Welcome back, everyone. As we continue our studies in the book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, <clears throat> and though Nitzavim was last week's portion and Vayelik is this week's portion, most years these two very short portions are studied together during the same week. So we had a Torah service last week, and Nitzavim is just one of my absolute favorite portions in Deuteronomy. And so we're just going to double it up this week and try to cover both of these. And again, they're both so short that together they make like one normal Torah portion. Now, there's one aggravating thing about chapter 29. This is one of those chapters where the verse numbers in the Hebrew Bible and the verse numbers in an English Bible don't exactly line up. But the good news is they're only off by one verse number. And if I remember correctly, uh, verse 9 in the Hebrew Bible would be verse 10 in your English Bible. So anyways, if I refer to a verse number and it doesn't seem to line up with the Bible you have in front of you, um, just go down another verse and you should be in the right spot. So um, what, one of the things I found interesting is that Nitzavim... Uh, comes from the Hebrew word natzav, which means to stand. And v'yelik comes from the Hebrew root verb halach, which means to walk. Stand and walk. And when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of Watchmanese, a little book called Sit, Walk, Stand. One of my favorites, a profound and impactful book that everyone should read. It's based on the, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Early in the letter, Paul talks to the Ephesians and says, we are all seated with Messiah in heavenly places. So we sit. Then you read through a little bit further through Ephesians, and and Paul says that we walk in this world. And then when you get near the end of Ephesians, he says we are to stand against the enemy. We sit with Messiah. We walk in the world. We stand against the enemy. Well, here we have stand first and then walk, and then later, when the Israelites cross the Jordan under Joshua's leadership, they will sit, every man under his own vine, in his own inheritance, in his own home. They'll come to a place of rest. So, in Ephesians, it's sit, walk, stand, but here in the Torah and in Joshua, you could say it's stand, walk, sit. Now, these aren't in contradiction to each other, but you can think of it as the unfolding of a menorah and the one reflects the other. So just something to throw out there for you to think about and um, just something that caught my attention. So anyways, let's jump right into our teaching in Deuteronomy 29, verse 9. And for you in English Bibles, I believe it's verse 10 for you. And we read, You are standing today, all of you, before Adonai your God the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your small children, your women, and your sojourner, these would be the Gentiles, who is in the midst of your camp, from the hewer of your wood to the drawer of your water, for you to pass into the covenant of Adonai your God and into his imprecation. That word imprecation basically means a curse, but it's a kind of curse that comes from disobedience. To God's commandments. So you're going to pass into his covenant and into his imprecation that Adonai, your God, seals with you today. In order to establish you today as a people to him, and that he be a God to you, as he spoke to you and as he swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Not with you alone do I seal this covenant and this imprecation, But with whoever is here, standing with us today before Adonai our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. As I was pondering this during the week, I was thinking of the tightrope walk we are all involved in. uh, A balance that we must all maintain if we want to live healthy, and victorious and fruitful lives in this redeemed existence that God has provided us to walk in. And there are two relationships that I need to pay 
uh, close attention to and keep them in balance. And one relationship is my relationship with God. That goes without saying. I must maintain my relationship with God. But some people focus so much on their relationship with God that they make themselves insufferable to others. I was uh, going through a box of old clippings just a day or two ago, and I came across a cartoon someone had clipped for me. And uh, it shows a man standing at the pearly gates, and Peter's there talking to him. Peter's looking at a book, and he says to the man, Yes, you are one of the redeemed, but you seem to have missed the part about not being a jerk about it. And you know, (laughs) there are a lot of people out there who are believers, but they're not very pleasant people to be with. They may be so focused on their walk with God, their closeness with God, but they've kind of overlooked their relationship with others. After all, when Yeshua was asked, what is the great commandment? He gave two commandments, to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. But I'm constantly encountering people who focus on one or the other, but do not keep these in balance. People who focus only on the relationship with God tend to be very judgmental, very critical, bitter. They uh, get offended so very easily, and they tend to look down their noses at everyone else. On the other hand, there are people who don't seem to have a very strong relationship with God, but they love God's people. And they love spending time with people. They love spending time talking and eating and and studying. As long as there's a bunch of people there, they just want to be with people, people, people. But their walk with God's pretty weak. And when they're not with people, they find themselves kind of collapsing spiritually because they are energized by only being with others. We need to be people in balance. And I know of myself, I have one of these tendencies more than the other, and I'm always having to think, Grant, you need to bring balance to this. And I won't tell you which one it is, but uh, some of you may know. But during these 10 days of all, Rosh Hashanah was just last Monday evening. During these 10 days of awe and repentance where we take inventory of our lives, I really encourage you to look at your own life and ask yourself, which one of these am I overbalanced in or are I underbalanced in? Because you don't want to tip over. And purpose in your heart over this next year to bring correction, to bring balance to this. This balance is so very important. And we see it here in our passage because it says that, uh, you know, you're all standing together here. In fact, some of the, the rabbis say that the reason that they are ready to enter into this covenant is because this is the first time since leaving Egypt. All the people are united in heart and mind. And it's because they're so united in heart and mind that they're finally ready to enter into this covenant wholeheartedly. And um, it says there in verse 12, in order to establish you today as a people to him. This is the relationship with others that we're talking about. We're a people. You're one. You have a good relationship with one another. Whether you're leaders or followers, men, women, children, Gentiles, servants, makes no difference. You're one together. So in order to establish you today as a people to him and that he be a God to you. And for him to be a God to us, he must be a God to each of us individually. And this is addressed as we go further. You know, this is Moses' probably last day on earth when he's giving this speech. And in John 17, we come to Yeshua's last day on earth before his crucifixion. And he's in the garden and he's praying this high priestly prayer, of the most amazing prayers in the Bible. And in verses 20 and 21, as he prays, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, my, my 12 apostles, but for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, for you and me who believe in Yeshua through the word of the apostles that's been passed on to us, that they may all be one, 
All right, so there it is. He wants us united. He wants us committed to one another. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. There is a relationship with God. So Yeshua is praying that we'll be one, that we'll be a people, also praying that we'll be close to him, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I tell you what, if the world could see a people who truly love one another and a people who truly follow God in covenant with him, the world could never be the same again. So the enemy is always attacking. And they'll chip away at your weak spot. Is your weakness, your inability to really connect with other people, then that's where he'll attack and try to keep you separated from them. Is your weak spot your ability to really spend time quietly with God, meditating on his word, developing a relationship with him? Then that's the area where the enemy will camp out and lay siege to your life. So let's be strong in both of these areas. Let's do our best to have a strong relationship with God and to have strong relationships with our brothers and sisters. Now, I have a question for you. Who is God making this covenant with? Who is he making it with? And if you said with everyone, you're exactly right. Because it says it's not just with those who are standing with us in verse 14, Uh, but also with whoever is not here with us today. Well, I wasn't there that day, and I'm guessing you weren't either. So that means the covenant's for you and me as well. One of the things I want to make sure I drive home with this is this. Don't read the Bible only as if it was written back then for those people in that situation. The Bible was written for you today and the situation you're in now. It was written for me. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, talks about the the testings that Israel went through and their, their failures and the consequences. He says these things weren't written just for them. They were written down for our instruction. These things happened to instruct us, and even on a deeper level, They describe intimately the things you and I go through. So don't look at this in just a fleshly or intellectual way. You know, some people will read this passage where Moses is speaking to these people. You're all standing today, all of you, before Adonai, your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and so on. And they'll ask the question, How was it possible for Moses to speak to hundreds of thousands of people and all of them hear them at the same time? Did he have a big megaphone? Was there some kind of system they had in place where he would speak something that people would relate it on? And and some people will read this, get all hung up on that and completely miss what is actually being said. Personally, I could not care less how the people could hear the words Moses said. All that matters to me is what did Moses say? What was God saying to me and to us in these words? Because this covenant is for those who even were not there that day. This is a covenant that includes me. It includes you. It's a covenant for everyone who's looking at these words and reading them. So if you're listening to this, you are included in this covenant. And it's very serious. Well, let's continue. Verse 15, or 16, and maybe you're in, in your case. For you know how we dwelled in the land of Egypt, and how we passed through the midst of the nations through whom you passed. And you saw their abominations and their detestable idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold that were with them. Perhaps there is among you a man or woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from Adonai, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Perhaps there is among you a root flourishing with gall and wormwood. And it will be that when he hears the words of this imprecation, he will bless himself in his heart 
saying, peace will be with me, though I walk as my heart sees fit, thereby sweeping up or heaping the watered with the thirsty. Adonai will not be willing to forgive him, for then Adonai's anger and jealousy will smoke against that man, and the entire imprecation written in this book will come down upon him, and Adonai will erase his name from under heaven. Adonai will set him aside for evil from among all the tribes of Israel, like all the imprecations of the covenant that is written in this book of the Torah. This is serious stuff. You know, he reminds the people that they once dwelled in the land of Egypt and they passed out of the land of Egypt. And it reminds them of the, the idols and the horrible pagan worship and the idols of silver and gold and the abominations that they saw. Why does he remind them of those things? I think it's because when they were in Egypt, God did battle against the gods, the so-called gods of Egypt, and he destroyed each one. Whether it was worship of the Nile River or worship of the frog god or worship of the sun god or whatever god it was, God brought a plague that showed that God had conquered that so-called false god. So God did all the warfare against the gods of Egypt so that he could set his people free. But as the people go into the land of Canaan, they will have to do the war against the false gods of Canaan. If they're going to go into their inheritance and succeed and be victorious, they now must do what God did. They must take up the fight and they must wage war against the false gods of Canaan. It's wonderful to think of the things that God has done in our lives to bring victory, things that he has conquered, that he has changed. But now he's saying, okay, your turn, you try it. Because there are other things that you need to conquer, but this time I want you to do it. I want you to do the fighting. I'm here to coach you. I'm here to help you. But I'm not going to pick up the sword for you. You now know the sword of the word of God. Use it. Don't keep it in its scabbard. Take it out and stand against the enemy and destroy the things he brings against you in this life. So there's a time where we sit and God fights. There's another time where God watches and we fight. We must know which battles are which. So I encourage you to make sure you, you can make that distinction in your own life. But in verse 17, he says, perhaps there's among you a man or woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from Adonai, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Perhaps there's among you a root flourishing with gall and wormwood. I was fascinated by these two words, gall and wormwood. Um, Some of your translations may have different words maybe poison and bitterness or something like that. Uh, I'm not sure that we even have exact English translations of these two Hebrew words, so gall and wormwood work fine for me. But uh, So whatever your translation has, it's fine. Just go with that. But the word that we translate gall in Hebrew is the word rosh. And those of you who have a smattering of Hebrew are thinking, wait a minute, I know that word rosh. That word rosh means head. And you're exactly right. It also means gall. The same word has two completely different translations. One means gall or just say poison. And the other means head. As I mentioned, Monday night was rosh hashanah. The head of the year. This is the new year. Rosh means head. It also means poison. Don't ever forget that. You know, if I had to pick one teaching out of the Torah cycle and do that one teaching, say, for an entire month, four weeks in a row, 
The teaching I would choose is the one that I did near the end of Book of Numbers when Israel went to war against Sihon and Og. Sihon and Og. And their victory over Sihon and Og is mentioned over and over and over again. In fact, I'm not mistaken, I think it's even mentioned here in, in one of these two Torah portions. It was a defining event in the, Israel of his, in the history of Israel. And we each have a Sihon and Og we must defeat, and it will be a defining event in your life and in mine. Who are Sihon and Og? These two enemies of Israel who are teamed up together as a pair? Remember, Sihon, everything about him is a picture of human reasoning. And Og, everything about him pictures the tyranny of comfort, the tyranny of my own comfort. And my human reasoning will always come to the defense of what I find comfortable. It always gives me excuse for only doing things that are inside my comfort zone and never going outside of those. And my, the tyranny of comfort in my life will put a barrier around my mind to where I dare not think of anything outside of what I find comfortable. I don't want to consider anything that would require me to make a change that I'm not comfortable making. Sihon and Og are partners. But Israel could not cross the Jordan until they conquered Sihon and Og. Sihon and Og were aligned along the east bank of the Jordan River and for Israel to come across the Jordan into the land of promise, the land of victory and of their inheritance, and to come to the goal, they had to defeat these two enemies guarding the eastern barrier of Canaan. And if you want to enter in a place of victory in your life, a place of fruitfulness, a place of purpose, if you want to enter into the abundant life Messiah wants for you, you too must conquer Sihononog. You must conquer human reasoning, which is the greatest enemy of faith. And you must conquer the tyranny of comfort in your life. Or you will die in the wilderness. Now you'll have the word, because the word was given in the wilderness. But you can never really live it out in victory because you were defeated by human reasoning, and your addiction to comfort. I can't stress that enough. And everything that is being talked about here, about this, this shorish, this root of gall and wormwood, is something that arises from within the person, within the heart of the person, the heart of the family, or the heart of the tribe. And it's something that is poisonous, and again, the word for poison here is the word rosh, which also means head. Now, the word for wormwood is the word la'ana. We find it over here. And you may recognize those last three letters, some of you. The word ana means humble. La'ana means to humble. To humble someone or to humble yourself. And I guarantee if you live out of your head and if you allow this shorish, this root of poison in your heart, you will be humiliated. You will go from the top, from the head, right down to the ground. Because what does it say? It says in verse 19, Adonai will not be willing to forgive him. Adonai's anger and jealousy will smoke against that man. The entire imprecation, the curse written in this book will come down upon him. Adonai will erase his name from under heaven. Adonai will set him aside for evil, for unpleasantness, pressure, for difficulty from among all the tribes of Israel. And you know what? 
as I read this, every time I read that paragraph, verses 19 and 20, there are faces of people I know who come to mind. There are names that come to mind. People who allowed a root of bitterness, a poisonous root, arise in their hearts. And they went astray. All the time thinking that they were hyper-spiritual, that they were wiser than everyone else, thinking, oh, I'll be blessed though I walk according to the stubbornness of my own heart. And I've watched these things happen. I have watched them not only become unforgiving, but to be cut off from God's forgiveness. I've watched them suffer because of God's anger in their lives. I've watched curses come upon them in their health, in their finances, in their relationships. I've seen their name erased, whereas at one time their name, when it was mentioned, is like, oh yes, I, that person's so wise, that person's such a great example, to where nobody talks about that person anymore. It's almost as if they never even existed. And when their name is mentioned or their name is thought of, it's always with regret and with pain. And then their life simply becomes a byword. Their life becomes an example of what I don't want my life to be like. And again, I can think of a a handful of people and their faces come before my mind and their names I still remember. And I've seen it happen many times. And unfortunately, I will probably see it again. And so will you. But the warning here is that you not become one of these Paul, or I'm sorry, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, maybe it was Paul, he refers to this passage. In Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15, he says, pursue peace with all men. There's that relationship with others. Pursue peace with all men. And we're to pursue peace with all men as much as we can. Some people simply will not be at peace with us. But it won't be because we didn't pursue peace. And pursue what else? The holiness. The holiness, the set-apartness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, this should remind you of a verse. In the Beatitudes, Yeshua says, Blessed are the, for they shall see God. Do you remember who it is that shall see God? If you said the pure in heart, you're exactly right. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But what happens when someone allows a a root of poison into their heart? They will no longer be a set-apart holy people. They will not be at peace with all men. They will not see the Lord. So pursue peace with all men. And the holiness, the set-apartness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, that shorish of wormwood, of roche, springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now that last part there helps us to understand this very cryptic passage in verse 18, where it says, right at the end of the verse, thereby heaping or sweeping up the watered with the thirsty. Heaping up the watered with the thirsty? What does that mean? That must have been some kind of a saying that was well known back at the time that Moses uh, spoke these words. But if it was, it's gone out of fashion today, and it just seems very cryptic and puzzling. So as the rabbis ponder this, they bring out many wonderful insights, but they pretty much all boil down to this. And let me give you an alternate reading, and you can find this in the notes section of the, uh, of the notes. When the thirsty, meaning the sinful, are swept away, 
the watered, referring to the righteous, will also be damaged. I'll read that again. When the thirsty, meaning the sinful, are swept away, the watered, meaning the righteous, will also be damaged. Something I was going to share in the Torah service last week when I was commenting on the New Testament section that goes with Nitzavim. I was thinking about the pain I see so many believers experiencing in their heart. You can see it in their eyes. And they're people who have often allowed a root of bitterness in their lives. They've allowed unforgiveness to creep up. They've allowed anger to take root in their hearts. And they just allowed a flaw to go unaddressed in their lives for so long that that flaw has grown to the place where the person begins to think, this is just who I am. And it's not who you are. It's a tumor, a spiritual tumor that is not you. It's something that's trying to kill you as it sucks the life and energy and health out of you. And you experience pain. Let me tell you what the Bible calls that pain. What the Bible calls that pain is thirst. Thirst. And when I see angry, unforgiving, unhappy believers... What I see expressed in their lives is thirst. They are thirsting for the living water of God. They're thirsting for the living water. And yet something inside of them prevents them from drinking it. And they try to address this thirst, which they don't even know is a thirst. They try to address it with all kinds of other things. By piling on more activities in some area of their life. Or just by trying to avoid people who remind them by their very presence that there is a real lack in their lives and a real need. Or they try to fill it with self-pity or reading a self-help book. Or trying to pile on more Bible studies. Maybe that's, that's the, the answer. If you're feeling pain in your life because of an issue that doesn't seem to go away, that's called thirst. You're thirsty. And here, the people who are thirsty just spend more time with the people who are overflowing. That word watered can also mean overflowing. Here's the problem. If you don't fix your problem, you're going to damage others. If you don't fix the problem in your life, you are going to cause pain and hurt and loss in the lives of others. And if you care about that, then fix the problem in your life. Deal with it. Repent of it. Put it away. Kill it. Take your sword and, and pull a, a phineas and drive it through this thing that is bringing disgrace into your life. I think it's making a mockery of your faith and of your confession. And did you catch the fact that in verse 17, you find this phrase, perhaps there is among you, you find it twice. You find it twice in that verse. Now some translations translate this, Beware lest there be among you. But that's not correct. There's no beware there. The phrase is just pinyesh, pinyesh, which means perhaps there is. That's all it means, pinyesh. Pinyesh bechem, there is among you, within you. And it says it twice. The first time it says it is right at the beginning of the verse. Perhaps there's among you. A man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from Adonai, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. And then it says it again. 
Perhaps there is among you, exact same words, a root flourishing with gall and wormwood. And it will be that when he hears the words of this imprecation, he will bless himself in his heart, saying, Peace will be with me, though I walk as my heart sees fit. Why is this, this uh, just perhaps there is among you, why is it there two times? Is there a difference between the two statements? And as you read them closely, there seems to be a difference. The first one, perhaps there's among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from Adonai, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. This seems to be more of a, an open pursuit. An open pursuit. An open rebellion of going after uh, other gods. And please forgive my bad handwriting. An open pursuit. There's nothing hidden about it. It starts in their heart, but it rises up and, you know, they just begin to commit idolatry. And we see that happening later on in the scriptures. But the second, perhaps, there is among you, seems to deal with something more internal, more secret, more hidden. A root flourishing with with poison and wormwood, and it will be that when he hears the words of this imprecation, he'll bless himself in his heart, saying, oh, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. The why walk as my heart sees fit. This seems to be more of a secret sin. It's just a flavor there seems to be about these two phrases. You talk about it. You decide about it. And I'm just offering you uh, the kind of impression I'm getting from these two uses. But... Uh, I'm sure there's much more that you can gather from these. But I've always been fascinated by this phrase. Shalom will be with me, though I walk as my heart sees fit. And that's how sinful people bless themselves. They're not being blessed by someone else. He will bless himself inside his heart, saying, Shalom will be with me, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, or I walk as my heart sees fit. I call this the logic of disobedience. And where does this logic arise? In the rosh, in the head. And it is poison. And such people... And I know in my own life, I'm ashamed to say it, there have been times when I have been that person. Where I thought, ah, I don't want to do that. I know what God wants. I just don't want to do it. But I'll be okay. I'm doing so many other things right. And I'm doing so much more than other people in this area. And I'm serving so so diligently in this other area. I'll, I'll be okay. And though God says there are consequences for violating this particular principle or commandment, uh, all this other stuff makes up for it. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. God says don't deceive yourself because that kind of a thought in your heart is poison. It will poison you and it will damage others. I just can't drive this home strongly enough because I know there are some of you who are listening to this right now, who are watching this right now, and you are doing this exact same thing. You are blessing yourself. God isn't, but you're blessing yourself, saying, I'll be fine, even though I walk the way I want to walk. And I'm here to tell you right now, based on God's word, you will not be fine. And what's worse we won't be fine either. Because if you're part of our community, you will hurt us. You will damage us. So I ask you to repent. And I ask all of you during these 10 days of all to search your own hearts and see if this shorish of poison is in your own heart. Well, let's move on. Let's go on down to verse 21 and we'll pick up the pace a little bit. The later generation will say, so Moses looking on into the future, 
It says, your children who will arise after you and the foreigner, that there's the Gentile again, who will come from a distant land when they will see the plagues of that land and his illnesses. And then it goes on and you can read it on your own. And it goes on down through verse uh, 27, talking about the future when the people of Israel will break the covenant and experience all the consequences of the violation of God's Torah. And then you go on down to chapter 30, verse 1, and it says, It will be that when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse that I have presented before you, then you will take it to your heart among all the nations where Adonai your God has dispersed you. You will return unto Adonai your God. You will listen to his voice according to everything that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and all your soul. Then Adonai your God will bring back your captivity. So here's talk about all this restoration. Now if we graph this out, it looks like this. Chapter 29, verses 21 through 27 discuss Israel's rebellion. Israel's rebellion. And then in chapter 30, starting with verses, well, start with verse 1 all the way through verse 10, we see a prophecy of Israel's restoration or return. But there's this one verse in between the rebellion and the return, and that's verse 28, the last verse in the chapter. And it says this, The hidden are for Adonai our God, but the revealed are for us and our children forever to carry out all the words of this Torah. You know, if that verse were not there, you would not read through here and think, there seems to be something missing. It would never occur to you. But that verse is stuck right there in the middle. The hidden things are for Adonai, our God. But the revealed things are for us and our children forever. Why? What are they for? What are the revealed things for? To carry out all the words of this Torah. So we see this time of revelation. A time of revelation. Now, maybe just me, maybe I have a too active of an imagination. But I look over the history of Israel, and 2,000 years ago, I see a nation who had a group of leaders who allowed a root of poison and bitterness to arise in their hearts, and those leaders caused incredible damage to the nation. And because they refused to see Yeshua for who he was, because this handful of leaders who are so poisoned in their, their, their roche, their head, that they crucified the Messiah, the watered was swept away with the thirsty, the righteous were swept away with the sinful. And what a horrible thing that led to in Israel's history. They lost their temple. Many thousands lost their lives. They went into exile. It was a horrible time. It's a time that Moses is prophesying right here in this passage. It was a time of rebellion led by a few men who allowed a root root of bitterness to grow up inside of them, jealousy of Yeshua and what destruction it brought to Israel. And yet we know there's a time of Israel's return, and we see it even beginning now. We see so many of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob coming to faith in Messiah now. But in between, in this one verse, we see a time of revelation. We see a time of revelation. And it says that the revealed things are for us and for our children forever, but the hidden things are for God. For Adonai, our God. And I don't know about you, but I sure would like to know some of those hidden things. If you look at the verse, this is the way it, it appears, the hidden. That's the word satar. 
Nistar is the word that's used, but from the root Sitar, that's where we get the, word, the name Esther. Uh, Queen Esther, her name means hidden. And throughout the book of Esther, you don't see God's name appear. The hidden, the Sitar things belong to Adonai our God, but the revealed, the Galah, that's the word for revealed, these things belong to us and to our children forever. You know, in, um, in Isaiah 45.15, it says that you are a God who sitars himself, who hides himself. And in Psalm 119.18, one of my favorite verses, it says, Adonai gal enai, open my eyes, unveil my eyes. In other words, let my eyes receive revelation from your Torah. I may behold wonders from your Torah. Psalm 119.18. So you see those two words used in that verse. The thing is, the hidden things, I'm so curious about the hidden things. God has given us, us enough here that we can carry out his covenant. We can live out his Torah. But I want to know God more deeply. I just... There's a deep part of me that calls out to the deep part of him. Deep calls to deep, as it says in Psalm 42. And I really want to know him. Knowing about him is wonderful. But I want to know him. And you know, in Daniel 2.22, it uses both of these words, Galah and Satar, there. And Daniel speaks of God and says, It is he who, Galah, who reveals profound and satar things. God reveals hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. So though the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever, and the hidden things belong to God, Daniel's telling us, but sometimes God will reveal those hidden things. I always want to see what's going on behind the door, the locked door. When I go to a museum, I love looking at the things that are on display, but then I wonder, what are the things they don't have on display? Some of the great treasures they have that no one gets to see. I know... You can go to Disney World, and it's incredible to see what they've done. It's just an amazing place to go. But you can also take a tour where they take you behind the scenes. They take you underground of the tunnels. They show you how everything works. I'd love to take that tour someday. And when it comes to the revealed things of God, it's like I want to know the sod, the secret things. I want to know the sitar, the hidden things as well. And sometimes God gives me a glimpse and um, it's, it's a wonderful experience when God begins to reveal the things that are beneath the surface. And uh, so maybe I can just kind of whet your appetite to spend more time in God's presence, to dig a little deeper, to spend more time in, and uh, ask him, Lord, unveil my eyes that I may behold wonders from your Torah. Gol ene. Galah, to open my eyes, to bring revelation to them, the eyes of my heart, so I can see wonders. Well, as we go on through uh, one verse in chapter 30, I want to point out to you is verse 3. Then Adonai, your God, will bring back your captivity and have mercy upon you, and he will gather you in from all the people's to which Adonai, your God, has scattered you. Someone counted up all the verses in the Torah. A rabbi counted them up many years ago. And he found that this verse, verse 3, is the 5,708th verse of the Torah. Now, That sounds like a a Jewish year, doesn't it? 5708. This year, starting with Rosh Hashanah last Monday night, we are now in the year 5782. This year is 5782. 
That's the year we're in right now. Just started. So if we count back to 5708, just for fun, what does the year 5708 come out to? It comes out to the year 1948, which just so happens to be the year that Israel became a nation once again when the United Nations voted and passed the, um, the proposal that Israel be recognized as a nation. No such thing had ever happened before in history. 1948 is the year 5708, and the 5,708th verse of the Torah is, Then Adonai your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where Adonai your God has scattered you. I don't think that's a coincidence. But I do think this is one of those hidden things, one of those secret things that God delights to Galah to reveal to us. Well, let's go on to chapter 30, down to verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too difficult for you. That is what that means. It's not too far away. It's not too difficult. And it is not distant. It is not in heaven for you to say, who can ascend to the heaven? For us to take it for us so that we can listen to it and perform it. Nor is it across the sea for you to say, who can cross to the other side of the sea for us and take it for us so that we can listen to it and perform it. Rather, the word is very near to you in your mouth and your heart to perform it. Here's a question that comes up. Isn't part of the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesies in Jeremiah 31 that God will write his Torah on our hearts? Yet here it says, this word is in your heart, in your mouth and your heart. How could it be in their hearts and then later not be in their hearts? The answer is, it just can At this moment in Israel's history, the Torah was in their hearts. That's why they could cross the Jordan under Joshua's leadership and go into the land and conquer it and settle it because the Torah was in their hearts and God blessed them so very much because of that. Unfortunately, after a few more generations, his Torah was not in all of their hearts. It was in the hearts of a few, but not in all of them. But under the New Covenant, in Jeremiah 31, 31, and the verses that follow, God says, I will write my Torah on their hearts, and they will all know me from the greatest of them to the least of them, or least of them to the greatest of them. They'll all know me. In other words, when the Torah is written on your heart, what that means is it's not necessarily in your head. You don't have it memorized. But you want to obey it. You want to follow it. You want to do it. That's what the Torah on your heart means. And here we see a group of people who wanted to do the Torah. The previous generation didn't. And that's why they were too fearful, too cowardly, too faithless to cross the Jordan into the land. But this group is ready to go. Having God's Torah on your heart gives you incredible courage. And then in verse 15, I love this passage. See, I have placed before you today the life and the good and the death and the evil. No, pick. That which I command you today to love Adonai your God, to walk in his ways, to observe his commandments, his decrees, and his ordinances, then you will live and you will multiply and Adonai your God will bless you in the land to which you come to possess it. But if your heart will stray and you will not listen, and you are led astray, and you prostrate yourself to strange gods and serve them, I tell you today that you will surely be lost. You will not lengthen your days upon the land that you cross the Jordan to come there to possess it. I call heaven and earth today to bear witness against you. I have placed life and death before you, blessing and curse. And you shall choose life so that you will live, you and your offspring, to love Adonai your God, to listen to his voice, to cleave to him. 
for he is your life and the length of your days. I want you to catch that. God, even though the scriptures many times tell us God gives us life, we have to understand that God gives us life by giving us himself. Yeshua gives us life by giving us himself because God is our life. He is our life. For he is your life and the length of your days to dwell upon the land that Adonai swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Choose life. So here's a question. What does choosing life look like? What does it mean to choose life? Well, the passage gives us three things, three ways in which we choose life. It says in verse 19, I bear heaven and earth to bear witness against you. Uh, I have placed life and death before you, blessing and curse. You shall choose life so that you will live in your offspring. And here it is, to love Adonai. That's the first thing, to love Adonai. You want to choose life? Love God. Because there's no life apart from him. He's the source of life. He's the sustainer of life. He is the breath of life. And we have to love him. Because to to love means to connect. The Hebrew word for love, ahava, which is the word used here, has the same numerical value as the word ichad, one. Because when two people love, they become one. So we want to love Adonai. Second is to listen to his voice. To listen. And remember, the word Shema, listen, there's no other word for obey. To listen means to take it to heart to do, to hear what he says and do it. To listen to Adonai. To listen to his voice. And then the third thing, to cleave. To cleave to Adonai. To cleave to him. That word cleave is the word devak. And you know where the first place is we find it? It's a word that means glue in Hebrew. To cleave. Uh, The first place we find it is back in Genesis 2.24. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and devak shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. We must love God. We must listen to him. As a wife who loves her husband listens to him, as a husband who loves his wife listens to her, to know what he can do to please her, and then to cleave, to become one, to glue to that one. When we do these three things, we have chosen life. But to neglect any one of these is to let life slip through our fingers to a degree. And let's go in to Vyelik just a little bit. We're going to save most of Vyelik for next week because it's an introduction to the Song of Moses, uh, which is portion Ha'atzinu in chapter 32. That is the Song of Moses. So most of chapter 31 is an introduction to that song. So we'll save that for next week. But in verse 1, it says, Moses went and spoke these words to all of Israel. He said to them, I am a hundred and twenty years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. For Adonai has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. Adonai your God, he will cross before you. Now notice how many times the word before you is used. Lifanecha is the word before your face, in front of your face. He will cross before you. He will destroy these nations from before you. And you shall possess them. Joshua, he shall cross over before you. No, wait a minute. It just says God would cross over before you. And now it's saying Yeshua, Joshua, will cross before you. As Adonai has spoken. Adonai will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og. There they are again. Sihon and Og define victory in this redeemed life. Don't ever forget that. And though I can't go back and do that teaching four times in a row, I challenge you to go back and listen to it four times in a row. Because I can't stress enough how important it is for each of us to have total victory over Sihon and Og. Human reasoning 
and the tyranny of comfort. The kings of the Amorite and their land, which he destroyed, and Adonai gave them before you. And you shall do to them according to the entire commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. By the way, whenever you find that phrase, we found it some uh, uh, earlier, and we'll find it again, and we'll find it in Joshua, be strong and courageous. That commandment, that order is normally given in a place where there's been past failure, past defeat. I want you to think about the times you've been defeated, where you've had a bad experience, and you think, I'll never do that again. But then God calls you to do it again. And that's when you need to hear him say, be strong, be courageous. I know it blew up in your face last time, but this is not then. This is not that. This is now. I'm with you now. And this time you're doing it because I'm with you, because I'm telling you to, because it's the right time. Do it. Be strong and courageous. Don't let past failure prevent you from future victory. Do not be afraid. Do not be broken before them. For Adonai, your God, it is he who goes before you. He will not release you, nor will he forsake you. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him before the eyes of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall come with this people to the land that Adonai swore to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. You, Joshua, you will cause them to inherit it. Adonai, it is he who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not release you, nor will he forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Moses wrote this Torah, gave it to the Kohanim, the priests, the sons of Levi, the bearers of the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai, and to all the elders of Israel. I just want to say two quick things, so we'll close. First of all, Moses wrote down the Torah. He gave it to the priests, and it was to be put beside the Ark. Whenever you read about the Ark of the Covenant... When you see it in the scriptures, when you think about it, here's what you should think about. The Ark of the Covenant, always without exception, represents God's presence in the world. God's presence. Where the Ark went, God's presence went. When the Ark rested, God's presence rested there. When the Ark moved, God's presence was moving. Where the Ark was, God was there. But there's something that was supposed to accompany the ark, we discover now, and that is the word, the Torah. We want to walk with God. We can only do so if our walk with God is according to the Torah. We want to keep the Torah. But you must realize that if you're keeping the Torah, you are walking alongside God. You are being yoked to him. God's presence and God's instruction go together. And if you want the one, you must experience also the other. You cannot have the one without the other. People want to experience God's presence, but they don't want his Torah. It doesn't work. People want to follow the Torah, but uh, this relationship with God thing, that's too spiritual. Sorry. They go together. God's presence and God's Torah. And do you ever wonder why, though the Torah is given through Moses, Moses could not go into the promised land? And we know the story about him striking the rock instead of speaking to it. But there's a deeper thing at work here. God has given us a picture of Messiah and Torah. Though Moses the man could not cross over, <coughs> excuse me, the Torah of Moses did. And under Joshua, it was truly lived out in the land. We'll read that again. Though Moses the man could not cross over, the Torah of Moses did. It went across the Jordan into the promised land with the people, with Joshua, with the ark. The Torah went across. And under Joshua, the Torah was truly lived out in the land. Joshua and Yeshua are the same name. And when you study Joshua, 
you're actually studying the life and the career of Yeshua and his accomplishments and victory. And Moses could not lead the people into their inheritance. Joshua did. Moses could not cross over. Joshua did. And though Moses gave us the Torah, I should say God gave us the Torah through Moses, it was only under Joshua we see it lived out victoriously and fruitfully and fully. Get the picture? God gave the world Torah thousands of years ago. But with the coming of Yeshua, we see it lived out victoriously and fruitfully and in a way that each one of us can come in to our own inheritance. We can come into the place of victory and fruitfulness and into the abundant life. There's a wonderful picture being painted for us here. And my mind is spinning because there are so many other insights I would like us to get into in, in chapter 31 and back in 30 and 29 as well. But our time is gone. So here are some discussions, uh, discussion questions for you. And they're pretty easy ones, but I expect you to have a lot of insights and have your wheels turning while this teaching is going on. So I want you to share those things with one another. So here are your five questions. With whom did God make the covenant described in chapter 29? That's an easy one. But talk about what that really means for you. Second, what is the balancing act we are required to perform in our spiritual walk? Third, what is the significance of repeating the phrase, quote, perhaps there is among you, unquote? And that's in 29, 18, or 19. Fourth, what does sweeping away the overflowing with the thirsty mean? And that's in the next verse. And then last, how does the Torah define choose life? Camp out at that fifth question. That's so important. And uh, that's something you can put on your refrigerator. And always remind yourself about the things that entail choosing life. And of course, the references I used and some that I didn't get around to using are back here. That alternate reading uh, of 29.19 is there as well. So uh, with that, let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much for this amazing, amazing jam-packed portion of your Torah. Lord, it's as if Moses had so much to say, as if his heart was so full, and he just could hardly say it all. We hear the cry of a father's heart for his children, that he wants them to do well. He's about to say goodbye, and he doesn't want anything left unsaid. So, Father, I pray that we would hear the pain in Moses' heart and the longing that's there, For, Lord, it's the longing and the ache in your own heart for us that we would do well, that we would be victorious, that we would not have hidden sins in our lives. We would not bless ourselves and and deceive ourselves into thinking we'll have peace even though we walk according to our our own rebellious ways. Lord, I pray none of us would be guilty of damaging others through the poison of our own selfish, self-centered thoughts. So, Father, I pray you deliver us from that. Make us the people you want us to be, Father. And we praise you, we thank you for giving us such a sure and certain and steady light, the light of your Torah and the light of Messiah, in whose name we pray, amen.